Hey, listeners, if you are thinking about divorce and concerned about your children, please go to my online parenting plan course. It will help you plan how you're going to parent through divorce and beyond. And I promise you, it will keep conflicts from erupting in the future while keeping you centered on your children. Check it out at lisakoski.com. Welcome to Doing Divorce Different. Join family law attorney turned mediator, Lisa Kosky, for candid conversations on how to alleviate the fear of divorce and how to heal through empowerment. Now your host, Lisa Kosky. Welcome listeners. I am so excited to have finally a financial expert and a beautiful woman at that. I have Victoria Kurloff and I have to say, I kind of glommed onto you on Instagram because everybody knows I'm a horse gal and she's got some pictures of her riding with a horse. But as I dug in more, I just really thought that you would add a lot of value to my listeners because a lot of us, me included, can feel fearful about money, especially when you're going through a divorce. You know, I mean, it's hard enough just living life than when you've got that added. You know, what are some things that women can do to prepare for a divorce? And that is what you do. So to begin, Victoria, I want to hear your story, your journey about how you kind of, you know, ended up doing what you're doing. And we'll get into a little bit of the nuts and bolts of how we can help clients. And then I'll probably want a little coaching myself. I'm here all afternoon. So let's get after it. All right. Well, welcome, Victoria. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me, Lisa. Well, my story kind of begins with that horse, actually. And so when I was eight years old, my dad, who is a brilliant nuclear engineer, he helped me understand the importance of numerically communicating. And it began with the horse. And so what little girl doesn't want a pony, right? But the cost of the pony is very expensive. And it's not just the upfront cost. And so my dad asked that I go around to all the barns and conduct a life cycle cost analysis to determine actually what the total cost of the horse was. And so I put together my little report and I sat down with my parents and I pled my case. And when I was doing this, I realized that my parents were more motivated by the actual nuts and bolts of the conversation than they were with me, you know, pleading with them and using the emotional negotiation tactics that little girls love to use on their daddy. <laughs> but now you have to tell me again, how old were you? Eight years old. Good man. Yeah. Well, my dad, like, I don't want to be here all afternoon talking about my family, but my dad, he was an older father and he worked for the government during the Cold War as a nuclear engineer. And so he really understood the ability of numerical communication and how you would be able to transform your situation regardless of the environment and help create a future that you can believe in. The world runs on money. And if you do not understand how money is impacting your decision, then you're not making comprehensive, well-thought-out decision. So my dad knew that he wouldn't be around my entire life. And so he had moved to the private sector and had designed a type of train break. And my mom and I would just join him on the road when I was a kid. 
And I grew up in the family business and I understood that men and women viewed money very differently. And I didn't realize exactly then how our biology plays into that, but it created this environment where my mom had all the access to the cash in the world, but she was so far removed from the actual operations of it that, you know, conducting simple financial tasks would be overwhelming for her. And, you know, that's kind of how most women, we come up in a society that it was only in like the late 70s or early 80s that women actually got to hold a bank account on their own accord. Before that, we had to have our dads and our husbands do that for us. And so women traditionally have been taught that you get money from other people because that's how the system was set up. And so through feminism and all sorts of things, that is no longer the case. But a lot of us have these inherited beliefs that can be really hard to overcome. So my dad, being the smart man he was, he really wanted me to do better and to have more than he did. And he realized that I was going to need to know how money moves the world. So he just threw me in pretty much from the moment I was born. And so I was always sitting with our financial advisor and my mom. And I realized that our advisor was always talking over her head. My mom's a smart woman, but she doesn't have like a PhD in economics, right? Like we don't need to be going down in the nitty gritty and avoid talking about what she really needs to. So I realized early on that I could kind of act as the translator between our advisor and my mom. And so my role just kind of developed from there. And when I was 10 years old, I wrote my first long-term care report for my dad, right? <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah. Well, being an older man, he realized that my mom has very different like retirement and longevity needs than he does. And part of protecting the family was having a good long-term care policy. So I went on AOL and I researched out the top three carriers, put together my little report, and I went to our financial advisor and I said, hey, my parents are concerned about long-term care issues. My dad worked for the government doing all sorts of crazy things. Who knows what he was really exposed to? And, you know, my mom also needs to have the money last, you know, at least until she's 100. Well, I have lived until like 93 or, you know, just about to 100. So they have very different goals within their household. And one of the best ways of protecting that was through long-term care insurance. So as I was pleading our case to the financial advisor, I know now why he did what he did, but it still doesn't make it right. In fact, it makes it very wrong. But he told my parents that we have enough money and we can self-insure. And while my efforts were cute, it was really unnecessary. And so I didn't know it then, but he was not licensed in, <laughs> to sell long-term care insurance. He only did investments. In fact, that's what being a financial advisor means. You actually give financial advice over the whole picture. You only care about the investments. Well, guess what? People's life is not made up of just investment income. It is comprised of a variety of different risk assessments and goals that they have that you cannot and you should not accomplish with investing your money in the stock market. So going back to my parents, you know, we elected to go with his recommendation, not knowing any different. We thought that he actually was dedicated to our family. We were family friends. You know, I had gone to his, you know, I was a flower girl in one of the weddings of his kids. And so 
we had this tight relationship. And, you know, who are we to know that my dad would have a catastrophic stroke when I was 25? And the first thing I would think about was that freaking long-term care policy and how my family was now going to be impacted because we were going to have to pay for all of this out of pocket. And thank God my dad worked his tail off and we have resources, but it put me into a very hard position. And my mom was just so overcome with my dad's event that I had to take all of the financial burden on my shoulders and figure out exactly what was going to happen and where the money was going to come from and, you know, figure out my dad's, figure out his checkbook and how it was going to be stretched over this event. I'm sorry to interrupt as you're talking. I'm so into this and I have questions that are popping up. So when you talked about a financial advisor who you think you're going to because you're going to get this information and it would have been nice if he would have said, you know, I don't know a lot about this. Go to this person. But where can people who are listening get really good advice that's well-rounded, that's going to cover them? It is a very interesting industry because it's really only monetized if you sell insurance or investments. And so those are the two financial resources most people have in their lives. And so honestly, both at this point, I have like 11 or 12 different financial licenses and designations. So I've been on either side. I've been the investment guy. I've been the insurance guy. I understand how this business works. And so you do find that there are some good players, but the majority of it comes down to like financial coaches and people like myself that are trying to help people understand the importance of non-investment financial planning. You know, you need to take into consideration everything you want, including your budget. I mean, your budget is one of the most important tools you have in your divorce arsenal. In fact, it should be the most important tool you have in whatever life event you're going through. But our economy is actually incentivized to keep us financially stupid because when you're financially stupid, you'll go buy that impulsive purchase that you know you really shouldn't. But guess what? It makes you feel good. And the one thing that we have more than any country is advertisements. And by the time you are three years old, you have already witnessed one million advertisements that are telling you to buy, buy, buy. So I've been an impulse spender. <laughs> I know way more in my 20s than I ever, ever would ever imagine. <laughs> you know, I am so with you. I told you I was writing and I was doing a thought download before we got on the phone about money. And I mean, I was right now, even like we are probably five to 10 years away from retirement, my husband and I, and I still feel like I'm playing catch up every month. Like I still feel like I'm paying for something that I bought and I'm so tired of that. I'm so done with it. But I think, Victoria, that you must have had some interest in this as a child because I didn't. And I want to hear too, you said something about the biology being different in a woman. Oh, I got to hear about that because this looks oh so funny. But when I was 12 years old, my dad put me and my brother on a budget. Or he said, here's your allowance. And it was a big amount, but we had to pay for everything. And I was like, oh, and my brother was so into it and saving his money. And I was scared. And I stuck my head in that hole. And I don't know that it's ever come up. So... You know, I'm glad. So tell me about the biology and how we're different. Well, men and women, like biology states, we have two different roles. 
Men, they are traditionally the hunters in the relationship. So they're biologically programmed to go bring down big game. So how that translates financially is they will not spend anything and then they'll go buy like $150,000 Mercedes and not tell anybody about it. You know, that's just what they do. And women, on the other hand, we are the gatherers. And so when we go out to shop, we're not going to go look for that $150,000 Mercedes. We're going to go to like the sale bin over here and then, you know, make it a whole day and see if we can't hit every single store in town. Yep. And save some money and, you know, buy everything's on sale. And that is so interesting to me. And I see it in my own relationship. Yeah. Well, and it's fascinating because women, like traditionally, we are not really taught to advocate for ourselves. We're taught to be good little girls and to sit there and shut up and to smile, right? And so I see that as a major problem because money inherently, there's a little conflict in it because everybody wants it. And so if you do not understand how to even negotiate Well, how to really stand up for yourself, it can make negotiating over small things very difficult. So how many times have we gone to the checkout counter and the wrong price rung up? And how many of us actually like had the gumption to say, excuse me, I think this is incorrect. And even though it's like two or three bucks, maybe it's more, it can be very problematic because we have to verbalize our needs and that in a society that's shoving them down, man, that can be traumatic in itself. Right. Well, and I can't wait to hear from you. I mean, for any woman who's going through this, but when you're going through a divorce, my idea is the first step is to kind of collect the data. Like most people don't have a budget. I kind of have a budget. Like I kind of know what's going, but I'm not good about it. Like I want to know better. And I feel like it's hard work. You know what I mean? It's going to take a while. And so for my clients, it's hard for them to go through And I give them a big long sheet, you know, to make sure they're including everything. But I feel like by just having the knowledge, even if you go, holy cats, we're spending way more than we earn. Well, yeah, that stinks, but at least you know. Absolutely. And so I'm going to back up even further and talk about how money is an imaginary object. And it has gotten so much worse with the digitization of currency. Well, human beings, our brain is designed to hold on to a physical good. Like we need that in order to really conceptualize the transaction. And so when you're handing somebody over a hundred dollar bill, that man, you feel that. But when you just take your phone and you tap it, it's been gamified. So you get disconnected from the hard work that goes in to actually earning that hundred dollar bill. And really, you have to earn $115 because you're going to pay taxes. So either like $30 to $50 of that is going to have to be given to the tax man. So how much money you're actually spending can be very scary because that's tied to the activities you do in the world. So you kind of have to break apart the conditioning because it's like we are economically incentivized to go out and spend money we do not have. I mean, other countries don't really have a credit system. They don't, you know, bank on credit reports as much as we do. And that's because their citizens are not as marketed to as heavily. And so they understand the value of saving up before you actually purchase something. So unfortunately, as American women and individuals in general, 
it can be very challenging to overcome all of these obstacles. Because if you keep us in an uninformed, we make bad decisions. Yeah. What can you do? Like, I mean, this is true for myself, but my daughters, my young daughters, how do you just be aware every time you spin instead of making it a game? But what do we do about that? So I actually teach something called mindful spending. And so money is the best thing in the world because it is true power. I mean, if you are faced with a situation where you don't know what to do, but you have some money, you can kind of figure out your next steps. But if you're faced with you don't know what to do and you have no money, well, you're going to be at ground zero for a very long time. There is no alternative route until you get the funds to then support your idea to take the next step. So by practicing mindful spending, it's just a few questions that you ask yourself to really cultivate that consciousness as you go about your financial transactions in the day. So the first thing that you should ask yourself is, how am I feeling right now? Am I emotionally agitated? And then you can go even deeper and ask, why am I emotionally agitated and who does it economically benefit? You see this all the time with the beauty industry, right? Here are, you know, the before and after pictures. And the before pictures, it's like nobody looks that bad unless you're trying. <laughs> <laughs> well, but sometimes in the morning, maybe. <laughs> but we all have a beautiful glow. And when you tell us that we're not beautiful unless we use this product, you're trying to evoke our fear of insecurity. So, you know, understanding why your emotions are being activated can really help you understand if it's an idea that you hold or if it's something that someone else implanted into your mind. Gosh, and it's kind of going hand in hand with eating. I mean, I feel, you know, that mindset of being mindful of your eating and it's the same idea in my head. So, okay. And then what's the second step? So yeah, first I'm going to ask, how am I feeling? Then does this purchase benefit me? Is it a need or is it a want? Because how you purchase a need is very different than how you purchase a want. And then you can even break that further down. If it's a need, if it's a big ticket item like a dishwasher, well, you should buy that differently than, you know, towels. So there's a different buying process that accompanies the good that you're actually procuring. Okay. So if it's what you need, that's going to weigh more than something that you want. And you're making yourself yes. aware of that. So if you think of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, like, so is it going to impact, you know, your house, your food? Like, you kind of have to like break it down and think of very basic terms. <laughs> right. So if you're hungry and, you know, driving by McDonald's, well, that like feels really good to go buy some really hot French fries and eat that peanut oil. It tastes great. But if you're trying to be healthy, you need to like regulate back and ask yourself, is this a want or a need? If I'm actually hungry, that's a need. But if I want something that tastes good, right. that's want. So if you can understand what your body is actually responding to, you could then say, hey, let's go to Crispin Greens and I'll get a salad with a bunch of dressing. Maybe won't be as healthy as it could have been, but it won't be as bad as it would have been with the fries. Right. Okay. So we've got the step one, how am I feeling? Step two, is this a need or a want for mindful spending? What's the third question? What happens if I don't buy it today? Can I live without it? And then the fourth thing that you should ask yourself, does this purchase reflect my core values? 
So I work with all of my clients to pull out about four or five different keywords that they can keep at the ready. So when they go through the checkout line and they are faced with a purchase, they can, you know, stay true to their goals. And so, for example, I love Amazon, but Amazon isn't necessarily the most ethical player. And so while I like the convenience, is this really fulfilling my goal of creating a more equitable world? Probably not, actually. If anything, it's probably like promoting slavery, modern day slavery. So, you know, I feel like everybody should have the ability to use the bathroom during their work hours. And so, you know, like for me, it's very important. I view my dollars as voting tools. And I, like, at the end of the day, money is really what moves the needle from point A to point B. And sometimes economic realities are very hard because we like cheap products in the United States. Everybody likes cheap products. But in order to have a cheap product, you have to take the cost out of the process. And generally how you do that is through sweatshops and, you know, going to third worlds that don't have the rules and the regulations and the labor unions that the United States does. And so you're able to pay somebody, you know, 25 cents an hour where you would never be able to get away with that here. Yeah, the same holds true in my business. I work with assistants that are here. I don't have to. I could save money by going somewhere else, but I'm making the decision to work with, you know, people doing kind of what I do, adding value to people's lives, you know, and I know where the money's going. So I so appreciate that. Victoria, this is so much more than I thought it would be. And I feel like I want to pick you up. So I've got adult kids and I've got one that's a senior in high school. And I'm like, oh, this could be such an amazing course for kids these days about mindful spending and for all of us. And so now I kind of want to get back in because we are. I know, but it's okay because it's all affecting. So we don't have a lot of time left, but give me a little bit of a hint at what could some women do What's one of the things that they could do before they met with an attorney even? And I always say, educate yourself, educate yourself, educate yourself before you're getting divorced. What's something they can do financially to feel like they're maybe a little bit on top of their game? So I'm a believer that divorce is a financial transaction. Divorce actually has like four separate equations, so to speak, before you get to the end. So the first is the emotional. The second is the social. The third is the financial, and the fourth is the legal. Really, the financial and the emotional, those are two of the heaviest hitting equations that you really need to focus on. So the financial portion of the divorce has the ability to evoke so much negative emotion for everybody that it can cause legal issues, it can cause emotional issues, it can cause social issues. So the more you actually understand your real facts, you are going to save yourself so much time, effort, and energy as you navigate the divorce process. And so attorneys are great for navigating the legal system, but they do not have a personal finance education. And so oftentimes, like working with a certified divorce financial analyst like myself, you're able to take the best of both worlds, the financial and the legal, and work together to actually come to an agreement sooner and with less resistance. So one of the best things you can do is to gather all of your documents and to really start figuring out what your budget is. Okay. That makes me feel good because that is where I have people start 
is with their budgets. What about the emotional? You talk about that. I do work with clients on that a little bit, but can you tell me what you do for that piece? Yeah. So it's really interesting because as I've been talking about, money is this imaginary object and we project onto it all of our hopes and dreams, but also all of our negative emotions. And those have a tendency to rear up in the divorce process. Generally, a couple that, you know, is getting divorced, they probably didn't have the best communication skills. And then when you add the financial stress to that, it can be very challenging because you have all of those different prisms that you're having to overcome before you can even talk about the money. Well, there's a few things I want to talk about, but a lot of people have internal family financial narratives where they'll say, oh, we can't afford this. And generally that person's making, you know, $750,000 a year driving a sports car, but their partner is now having to shop at TJ Maxx because there's not enough money, but we know it's false. So a lot of those internal financial dialogues within the family, those have to be broke down because a lot of them are not true. They're control mechanisms. Money is power and power is control. And so when you are dealing with someone that you're trying to get your control back, you need to understand how they are using finances to their advantage. So working with somebody like myself, you kind of are able to come to a neutral position, understand the misconceptions of your financial background, and then update those in real time. So if you are making a request for child support, you know that the other person has the dollars. They might say that they don't and they're going to have to you know, work all this extra time, but you've done the hard work. Generally, most people don't want to punish the other person in the divorce process. And so it makes it so much easier to make a request for spousal support or child support when you know that both parties have the surplus funds or the other person has the surplus funds to give that to you. And then that person, they actually love seeing the budget because they know it's not going to go to hair and nails, but it's actually going to go to the child. And so the budget actually helps you overcome a lot of those little silly snipey conversations that you have while you're married. And so we know the kids cost $2,500 a month. And we know this because a documented financial report has been created. This is not just arbitrary number that somebody's throwing out there. Right. That makes so much sense. So do the work so that you have the data to really work with. And then it kind of can take the emotions out. Hey, I just wanted to pop in here quick before the saddle up segment and this whole thing winds down. And I want to tell you about my parenting plan online course. It is for you if you are terrified that divorce is going to ruin your children. I'm here to assure you that you can co-parent really well together. And I have an online course that is going to walk you through a parenting plan. You will have a piece of your divorce done. If you want to work with a mediator, you can bring the paperwork in and that portion is complete. It's easy, affordable, quick, and effective. And it will be part of your divorce paperwork if you'd like it to, or you can just use it to co-parent well with another parent. It goes over all the things that you may not be thinking of 
when you're in the midst of an emotional time like divorce. So please go to lisakoski.com, check on my online courses and sign up for the Parenting Plan course now because when parents work together, they can mitigate the damages caused by divorce to their children. And Victoria, I feel like I am going to want to have you on for another because I feel like I just touched in on so many more things. But for today's episode, as I wind down, I get to what I call the saddle up segment where I ask my guests to just give one tip or one positive thing they can do to move forward in a positive way. So I'm going to go back to that budget. That budget is the best thing. It is the greatest tool. It is one of the most uncomfortable things you'll probably ever do. But oh my gosh, you have the power of the world at your fingertips when you have a budget. You know what your post-divorce life is going to cost. So that makes it so much easier if you're trying to return to the workplace and you need to figure out, you know, if I only have spousal support for like five years and then, you know, it's going to stair step down. How do we make up that income? And so instead of going from this imaginary world where your future life seems financially unstable, you are now creating this vision of how it will actually operate so you can build it. I love that. And Victoria, we're going to have your information in the show notes, but how can people reach out to you? And do you work in most states or where are you? Uh, Yeah. I'm everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) That's the good thing about the COVID blessing, right? Yeah. Well, I am a financial expert. And so money is the same regardless of what state you're in. You can find me at divorceanalytics.com. That's my company I founded after I went through my own divorce and used a financial report to get myself out of it. And so we're on Instagram and all this normal social channels. But I just really believe that you are here to do something amazing. And if you do not feel amazing in your relationship, then it is worth the hard work and overcoming whatever obstacle it is, whether it's financial or emotional, you can do it. So good. And I'm so thankful you were here. And I think I'm going to have to have you on to talk more about your divorce story. So we'll set that up after this. But Victoria, it's just been a delight to get to know you and very, very helpful. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Doing Divorce Different podcast. Connect with us at lisakoski.com and sign up for our newsletter.